Morning, Mission View Church. Isn't it good to have a nice sunny day in Ohio? Yes. We had a great time at the Main Street Festival yesterday. For those of you that helped out yesterday, we thank you. Just having a presence in the community is so vitally important. And I know some people are out, going to be out serving today, so that's awesome. I don't know if you noticed, but in the words of the song, I would call it the messages of the song, because we first hear the word uh, sung, and then we preach the word, so that we can just be absorbed by God's word. But you'll notice the theme of peace. So I ask you right up front, do you have peace? Truly in your heart, do you as an individual have peace? Do you feel a comfort? Some of that comfort comes from knowing where I will spend eternity, knowing that I have a good, good father. I would just challenge you this morning to think about the peace or lack of peace that's going on in your heart. So we're going to get into God's Word in a moment. I'm going to start out with a, uh, preacher, a preacher story, non-embellished, because you know preachers can embellish things all the time. But it's, a, it's not exactly flattering to me. About a year ago, um, I, I got a phone call, and the voice on the other side was a blast from the past. It was a mother of one of the students that I had had at one time. Actually, this was so long ago that that student is now in her upper 30s and has children going into junior high and high school. So it was a long time ago. But she, when she talked to me, she said, Steve, do you realize that my daughter will not step foot into a church today because of you? Caused me to, yeah, that, that's, that's what I did. I'm like, what? I mean, that immediately put a pit into my stomach, and I started going through the, uh, the, the cobwebs of my memory and trying to remember what in the world happened with this student. So I asked her, I said, could you just refresh my memory because I can't think of anything that would have caused such trauma to your daughter. And so she's, she unveiled the story of how her young daughter was when she was in high school. I was a junior high pastor, but she was in high school on a high school activity, did something inappropriate. It very much was inappropriate. But she said afterwards, the way that the church handled it, it's how she was scarred. It, we brought together a committee of individuals, men, there was a senior pastor, there was an elder, there was a youth worker, there was a high school pastor, and there was the junior high pastor. And as soon as she said that, I knew it was true. Because the very first church I was a part of, that's how they dealt with things. And she told me, she says, you led the way in bringing the charges against my daughter. And as, as a result, my daughter has not spent, she's not gone to church since. And I started thinking about it, and I said, you know what, I honestly, I can't remember doing that, but what I would love to do is if you would allow me, if you'd give me the cell number of your daughter, I'll give her a call. And so right after I hung up, I called her, and we ended up having a one-hour conversation, and she started putting the pieces of the puzzle back together for me, and she could recall it because it was a scar in her life, and she knew it, you know, completely. 
And what I realized is that I was really guilty by association by being a part of this witch trial that we had as uh, as a church leadership. Now, a couple weeks ago, I shared with you that the very first church I was a part of, I drank the Kool-Aid. It was a law church. It was a judgmental church. And there were some things that I look back on and I think, oh, never again. And even in this conversation, the Spirit of God just confirmed in my heart, Steve, I never want you on this side of a conflict again. I want you to be a peacekeeper in the church and do things in love. And as I had a chance, I didn't lead the way in the discussion. That was uh, misinformation. But I was there present. But I had a chance to be able to speak to her and ask her for her forgiveness. And I, told, I was able to speak words of grace and truth to her and encouraged her that just because man messes up and man is always going to mess up, that doesn't mean God's a mess up. And so you can trust in him. And the report I got later after we hung up, it was a, a positive thing. She did say she felt like she could put this back. It's been dealt with. Now she feels like she can go on with her life without this haunting her. And as, as, as we hung up, I prayed for her and we hung up. I started thinking, over 20 years, this girl has held on to this. And I had no idea. And it made me think of how important our words are in the church. How important our actions are. And that was one of my failings. And I determined I have to do things by God's order. You know, it says in Romans chapter 12, it says this, if it is possible, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So church, I ask you the same question that I've evaluated for myself. Are we peacemakers within the church? Are we creating what I would call a culture of peace within the body of Christ? This is what Paul is going to deal with today in Philippians chapter 4. If you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, then we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 9. Now just know that this is the fourth of our vital signs. Our summer series is called Vital Signs. Vital signs are the things, our blood pressure, making sure our heart is beating. These are all the things that are essential for life in a physical way. There's, there are spiritual parallels. And in chapter 1, Paul talked about the, the essential of the gospel being a focus of our life and of the church and as an individual. That's a vital sign. In chapter 2, he talked about humility and the example of having a functional daily humility like Christ is the example in our life. That's a vital sign. Then in chapter 3, we talked about the fortitude, the stick to itness that we have to have in this journey of life. It's hard. We have to press forward, forgetting what's behind us. We have to look forward and, and work our way in terms of just glorifying God and putting past the things of the past, making them the things of the past. And now we're going to talk about this faith that's secure. And God's going to give us two tools for that security. He's going to give us his peace. And next week, Pastor Adam is going to talk about his provision and what God has done to give us provision. 
So today we're going to talk about his peace. Let's ask God to work in our hearts. Lord Jesus, as we approach your holy word, I pray that we would become a holy people. I pray, Father, that you would root out the things in our life, the heart, the heart of bitterness. I pray that you would root out any anger. I pray that you would root out the things that go against your character. I pray, Father, that even in the midst of really rotten and difficult situations, we might be able to respond in your peace and in your love. And we admit, Lord, how difficult that is because there's so many difficult situations we face in life. But I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand what your word is saying today. In Christ's name, amen. In chapter 4, verse, uh, in verses 1 to 9, Paul is going to start off with an anxious situation that was in the church. This was trouble. There was a sense of division. Now, Philippians has been pretty much a really great book, an upbeat, filled with joy. Constantly, Paul says, have joy, have joy. And he's commending them for many things. This is probably the one problem that they had. And so Paul had to deal with this, that there was this sense of disunity that was in the church that was causing them to be anxious as a body. And you know what that's like. You've been in places where there's been disunity in the body of Christ. You know that anxious feeling you have, like, I, I just want this to go away. I, I just wish we could just get past it. And so Paul is going to give us tools in which we can deal with these kind of problems. Now here's the, the, the in this anxious situation, just know this. The reason we have it is because the church contains people. It contains people. In Ephesians, Paul says, bear with one another. Why does Paul say that? Why does he say bear with one another? Why doesn't he? He says love one another. We've heard things like share with one another, encourage one another. But in Ephesians 4, he says bear with one another. The reason is because in this room, with the children included, we have 260 people with two di uh, different personalities, different likes and dislikes. We have different ways in which we handle problems. Some of us love to aggressively handle it head on. How many people are like that? You are head on type of people. And then there's some of us that just like it to go away. We want to bury it. We want to avoid it at all costs. Who likes to avoid conflict at all costs? Come on, be honest, raise your hands. Okay, very good. We have both groups in this room, if we're honest. And so we have that in the body of Christ. Well, they had it there in Philippi as well. So this is what Paul says to them. He says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So it's a kind of a general statement that we'll cover. And then he gets into the specific in verse 2. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Uh, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. 
Now the word therefore takes us back to chapter 3 where Paul was talking about this whole maturity process we have in life and the fortitude that we're supposed to have. And so now he's dealing with a maturity issue within the church. And so therefore linked to this idea of growing in our maturity, he wants us to mature in the area of conflict within the church. In light of this maturing process, uh, Paul gives a practical issue of unity that he says we have to deal with. Now notice he says, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. He starts out positive. He says, this is a church I love. You are my brothers. You are my sisters. The word brothers is a generic statement talking about the church. And he says, you are my joy, my crown. Now, when he says my crown, he's talking about the victor's crown that's given at, uh, at the, the one who wins an athletic event or somebody at a banquet that's given an award because of their lifestyle and because of their integrity. He is saying, you are that to me. I love you guys. You're my joy, my crown. You know, in counseling, they always start off with a positive and then they deal with the negative and then they end with the positive. So it's kind of Paul cushioning it in there. I love you guys, but here's what we got to deal with. We have to deal with the issue. He says, I want in general for you to stand firm in the Lord. In general, this is what we got to do. And stand firm is a military command. It was a military command saying, stand your post. I want you to be immovable in the things that we're going to talk about, especially in creating this culture of peace versus disunity. So this gives us our first principle. If you're keeping notes, I'm going to give you five principles today. Number one principle is this. I'm calling it my COP principles, culture of peace. That's what it stands for. Culture of peace principle number one is this. We must not let down our guard, but instead we must be vigilant to preserve unity. My friends, we must be vigilant as a church to preserve the unity in the body of Christ. Yes, there will be problems that happen. Yes, there will be disagreements. But if we do it God's way, then those disagreements will be handled. Do you realize that God only gives you two options in terms of problems within the church? We either forgive it, let love cover it, or we go to them. That's it. 1 Peter 4 says, we are, love covers a multitude of sins. If we dealt with every sin or if we dealt with every minor infraction in the church, we would constantly be in conflict. You would constantly be coming to me and saying, Pastor Steve, I have this against you. Don't do that, please. Don't do it with each other. There are certain things we just got to ask ourselves, okay, can I just let this thing go? Can I just let it go? And if we can, let love cover it. Just know that they're just as flawed as you are. And we're going to make mistakes. We either let love cover it, or the second thing, according to Matthew chapter 5, is we leave our offering and we go and reconcile. God doesn't give us any other option. God doesn't allow us to brew on it, to maul on it, to, 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 to maul it over, to uh, allow the situation to fester within us, for us to pull our best friend in, our confidant, and share all these gritty details about what that person did. 
Because what we've just done is we've corrupted that person's mind about the other person. And thus disunity starts bubbling up in the church. So we have to stand firm. That's number one. Paul then goes on to the specific situation and he says, Okay, Judea and Satiki, I'm calling you out. I'm calling you out. You're not living up to your names. The word Judea means prosperous journey. The word Sintiki, which uh, I would recommend you naming your next child if you're still in childbearing. I think it's a great name. Hey, Sintiki, come on over here. Um, it, it means pleasant acquaintance. Pleasant acquaintance. These two women were uh, prominent within the church. It's very likely that they were a part of the original core that started the church. If you remember in Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Timothy, they go in and they witness to the, there was no synagogue, but it was women that were praying by a river. And there was Lydia, a rich merchant, came to faith in Christ and a bunch of women with them. It's very possible that these were some of those women. And so, but now, years later, they find themselves on opposing viewpoints in some area. And Paul says, I want you to agree in the Lord. You know what he's saying there? I want you to have the same mind. That's the same word that was used in chapter 2. I want you to have a unified mind, and I want you to be committed to being unified. Now, I want you to know something, though. The root of every conflict is pride. It always is. It's one person thinking that the other person's in fault and they are not and vice versa. But if we examine within our hearts, it's very rarely one person's problem. This is true in marriage. It's true with friends. We have to look at our own fault. It's very easy for us to say, you've done this, you've done this in marriage counseling when they're sitting on the couch and we're talking and what's the problem? And she says, he's done this, 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 and this. And she could talk for an hour. I'll bet you two hours, maybe three. And then he, I go to him, what's her problem? What's going on here? It's her and this and this and this and this. And she can go on and on. He can go on and on and on. And then you stop and say, okay, you guys have identified what each other's problem is. Tell me what your problem is. Crickets. It's because we don't want to look internally at our own pride, my friends. And if we look at our own pride, we'll find that we are a part of the problem. And this is what Paul wants to address here. Interestingly, Paul in this situation has to invoke a third party. Look at verse 3. He says, yes, I ask you also true companion. Underline that phrase, true companion. I think it's the name of a person. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clements and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Now, true companion can be translated loyal yoke fellow. And yoke fellow was actually a name in that day. It was something, somebody could be called yoke fellow in Hebrew. And so we could see that this is a person, probably an elder within the church, and Mr. Yokefellow is being commissioned by Paul. I want you to bring these people together because sometimes a mediator is absolutely necessary. Why does Paul want this situation dealt with? Because it can bring a bad name to Christ. It's not just a bad name to that Philippian church. It's not just a bad name to Mission View. It's a bad name to God. 
Do you realize that our actions, whatever we do throughout the week, it is a reflection not only the name of your family, but it is a reflection on the name of your Savior. And so we need to ask ourselves, how am I, what am I doing for the reputation of Christ? And so he says, I, we got to deal with this and I want you to come alongside of them to help create this peace. This brings us to uh, our principle number two for culture of peace. And that is a mediator is often needed in difficult situations due to our own blind spots. I don't know if you know this, but you have blind spots. A blind spot is something that we just can't see. Now, often it is the case with children. Our children are angelic. Our children can do no wrong. Well, some of us know that that's not true. But in times of conflict, I can't tell you how many conflicts we've had over the years that deals with one family versus another family dealing with their teenager or dealing with their young adult. And there is some incredible division that goes along that we have to deal with. What we do is we bring in a mediator. A mediator that both people trust. And the agreement is, hey, we're going to listen. I'm going to hear it. But I'm the outside perspective. I see, I'm going to see into the blind spots. And whatever I say is going to be the conclusion of this matter. This is what Paul is saying in regards to Mr. Yokefellow coming in. So my question would be for you, is there any, are there any unresolved issues that need to be addressed in your life? This is what Paul wants for the body of Christ. He wants them to be addressed. So Paul then moves on into the next verses and he's going to give the remedy to this anxiety that's happening within the church and he's going to do it on a personal level. Why? Because he, we can't do anything about the next person. We can't do anything about our husband or our wife. We can't do anything about our boyfriend or girlfriend. We can't do anything about that, that other person that we fellowship with in the church that we're having a strained relationship with. We can't do anything about them. But guess who you can do something about? You. You can do something about you. And so this is what Paul is going to do. And notice what he says. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And here's the Here's the promise that God gives. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, Paul is giving three practical things that we can do in order for us to have peace. Now, let me give a clarification before we cover these three things. He is not saying that this is going to take away your problem. He is saying that it will help your problem come into perspective if you apply these things. So here's what I want you to do. This is, you're going to be the case study today. If you will, I want you to think of a situation nearest to you in your night life right now that's bringing anxiety to you. Just think of that one situation that's bringing anxiety to you. Paul's going to give you counsel today on how to deal with it. Three things. Number one, rejoice. 
In fact, he says it twice. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. When he says it twice, it's an emphatic statement. Now, what he is not saying is be happy. He's not saying your life is happy or that your circumstances are happy. He's saying, I want you to have a focal point of rejoicing in the Lord. Notice it's rejoice in the Lord. Though your circumstances appear glim and you don't have an immediate solution, our first step is to rejoice. Now, please understand, Paul did that himself. When the Philippian church was just getting started in Acts chapter 16, years previous to this, guess what? Paul got thrown into jail. Paul and Silas were in jail, and it said that they were flogged. You know what that means? It means that they were stripped and beaten. So their faces have bruises on them. There's blood coming out of the corner of their mouth. Maybe I've watched one too many movies, but beating means those kind of results. And what did they end up doing in jail once they were thrown into a dirty dungeon? They started singing. They started praying. They started rejoicing in the Lord. I want you to know that when I am down, this is what I have to do. I have plenty of circumstances in my own life, and you know that. I won't highlight those. But so do you. I'll just tell you what I do. I often go to my back porch and I look at nature. I sit there in solitude and I just allow it to be quiet. Just quiet. And then I turn on my past Mission View services on Spotify. I honestly do. And I just listen to worship music. And as I worship God, things start to come into perspective. The anxiety starts to melt, and God does something. He gives me a warm hug. Now, here's the thing about rejoicing. It brings God's warm embrace, and he loves you as a father. I wish I could say that that was a perpetual warm embrace, but I don't live out on the back of my deck. I do life, just like you do. I have a hectic schedule. I go from one appointment to another appointment. But I will tell you right now, and this is our, our, our culture of peace principle number three. If you're not getting alone with God, you are missing out on a vital step towards peace. Solitude, being still before God, it's not something that we are very good at in our culture. But it is so vital. If you want the peace, the peace is there. But you have to be alone with God. You have to allow God to speak to your heart. Then you can rejoice. Here's the second step. It's not very easy. It's not any more easy than the first step. It's be reasonable. The word reasonable means gentle. Now tell me how good we are at being gentle as a people. He says, let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
Now, why does he say the Lord is at hand? It's a statement to say that God is near you at all times. We sing about how God is near. The reality is he is very near because he put his spirit within our hearts if you are a believer. If you have not given your life to Christ, there is a nearness that you have not experienced yet, but you can. It comes through a commitment to Christ. And if you've come with a friend, if, you, if there's somebody that you trust, that you've seen that peace in their life, just talk about it with them. They'll unveil the beautiful message of God's great news for you. But it is in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit will instruct us when to speak, when not to speak, how to speak, if we tap into the fact that God is near. There's many situations where I should have paused first and prayed, God be near. Give me the words. But I didn't. And as a result, somebody was a recipient of Steve Marshall's fleshly response. Now, so I don't feel so vulnerable up here, is there anybody else that gives fleshly responses? Thank you. Thank you. So in order to know this for certain, I'm going to give you a quiz this morning. I'm just going to give you a situation. All you got to do is say, spirit-filled, fleshly response. You tell your coworker to stop being a bleep and to step in line. What is it? Fleshly response. Okay. It does happen. You tell your kid, you yell at your kids for being complete idiots and you let them know they are idiots. <laughs> fleshly response or spirit-filled? Some might debate that, but I think it was fleshly, okay? Number three, you pull into a parking lot and someone says, hey, buckaroo, but they don't use the word buckaroo. They use another descriptive adjective. And they say, why are you pulling up so close to my car? And though you're between the white lines, you simply back up your car and go to another space. Spirit-filled or fleshly response? Okay, a very difficult because you want to get out of your car and give them the what for. Okay, though you are so angry at the bozo that didn't yield at the yield sign, you choose to pray for that person instead of laying on your horn. Spirit-filled, fleshy response. Well, yeah, there could have been a beginning with flesh, but you know, the spirit overtook. Okay. Your wife tells you that she accidentally put a scratch in your new car. You pounce your way out to the living room to give yourself an adult timeout. It is there that you pray that God give you a forgiving spirit. Spirit-filled, fleshy response. Spirit-filled. We are human. We can pounce. Okay, here's a hard one. Very difficult one. You call to have false charges removed from your cable bill. And the reply is, I'm sorry, sir. We can do nothing about this. And you say, I'm going to let you fill in the blank. Often it is a fleshly response. See, as you can see, when we get into the real life stuff, being gentle to all is not easy. But what he's saying is, I'm near. You don't have to get into some of those needless conflicts, even though you might have a case, even though you might feel that you are wronged, you don't have to necessarily get into that conflict. Here's our 
our culture of peace principle number four. The only way we can peacefully deal with these situations is to know that God is at hand to help us and we ask for it. Otherwise, we might lose our testimony. I got stories about that, but we'll leave it there. So number three, here's the third. Rejoice, we were to have that gentle spirit. And number three, we pray, supplication, thanksgiving. Do not be anxious about anything, but everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Paul gives three words for prayer here. He says, just prayer, general coming, petitioning. This is our approach to God. We come to him. We actually think about praying. Number two, supplication is a big word that means praying for our needs or giving a request to God. Lord, help me out of this situation. Help me to have words of wisdom in this situation. But thanksgiving is the attitude of heart that accompanies our prayer. And all three combined are considered our requests before God. Now, as I look at the scriptures, I think there are some guiding principles to our prayer before God. Number one, make sure your request before God is God-honoring and not fleshly. Do you realize that we can have fleshly prayers? Oh, Lord Jesus, take him out, please. Bring down your wrath of heaven upon him. Actually allow him to see a little bit of hell now. And Lord, if he doesn't repent, please plague him with a thousand festering boils. <laughs> Amen. You know you've wanted to pray some of those prayers. Make sure that it's not filled with flesh. Start out by rejoicing. That's the second thing to keep in mind. Number three, ask God to show you your own faults. Examine yourself. Get the plank out of your own eye. And then come to him humbly as James 4 talks about. Draw near to God. Submit to him and he will draw near to you. That's what God wants. And notice what Paul says. The result is peace. This is a promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God is promising to flood your troubled soul with peace that goes beyond human comprehension. What a beautiful thing. God wants to do that. He wants to guard your mind. He wants to guard your heart. Well, let me just say one word about peace at any cost. Talking about peace doesn't mean that we avoid conflict. Sometimes we have to deal with it. And many people, I've heard this in parenting, I've heard this in life, where people will just say, you know what, I'm just, I'm just, it bothers me, I, I maul on it, but I'm just not going to deal with it because I just want there to be peace. Please understand that that kind of peace is a false peace. It's a false peace. I know that there are people that say, I just don't want to muddy the waters. There are people that say, I, I, I don't want to hold my kids accountable because I just don't want to fight. Or for parents that are supporting their young adults and they're paying their insurance bill, they're paying their college bill, but their kids are kind of gone wild. They've done their own thing. And the parents are like, I just don't want to take away those privileges because... It might drive them further away from God. That's not peace. That's not peace at all. 
So here's my question. What would you rather enjoy? A supernatural peace or a false peace? Do it God's way. So Paul closes out our passage, what I call the practices of peace. You know, in business, there are the best principles, the best practice principles that you're to have, that you're to do in your business. Well, this is God's best principles in terms of having a culture of peace, a mindset of peace for you. And this is what he says. And by the way, these two verses are great memory verses for your family. The whole passage is, but these especially. Listen to what he says. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. Whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. See, Paul gives six best principles for creating this culture of peace by the things we think about. Now, as I give these things, I'm just going to give brief definitions. The thing you need to do is, are these things the things I'm dwelling on? Because it's going to help give you peace. Number one, are you dwelling on truth? Are you dwelling on truth? God's word is truth. We are to absorb truth. The reason we come to church is to hear truth. And we want to create, we want to help counter all the crud that we hear throughout the week with truth. I used to say to my kids that truth is the foundation to who we are because truth is who God is. And I would say, well, if I can't trust you, if you're not true to me, true to your mom and dad and telling the truth, then, then you're going to lose credibility. And that whole trust and freedom that you want, you're not going to get it. It takes a long time to develop that credibility, but a very short time to lose it. The foundation of our family has to be truth. Number two, he says, honorable. The word honorable means admirable or worthy of respect. As a believer, we are to meditate on the things that are honorable, that are worthy of respect. I had lunch this week with uh, Bob Buchanan. And if Bob, you sit down with Bob for just a hot second, you'll find out that he's had a pretty rough past. And he told me this week, he says, in light of all the stuff I've gone through, I find that I have to saturate my mind with worship music and the Word of God. I have to do that to help my mindset, my mind think about things that are good, things that are honorable. Church, are we saturating our minds with what is noble or what is corrupt? Here's the third word, just. It's what's right and true. We are to be in harmony with God's divine standard of holiness. That's something that you could think about in terms of him being a just God. Not just a truthful God, but a just God. He's also, this, also the fourth quality is pure. That we dwell on what is pure. Now notice, every one of these are attributes of God. God is pure, so therefore he wants us to be pure. And purity is things that are morally clean, that are wholesome. It's quite a contradiction to what we often will allow to come through the ear gate or through the eye gate. We are to focus on and think about what is lovely, that which is pleasing and admirable. This implies that believers are to focus 
on being kind and gracious. It should overflow. If we're thinking about lovely, we become lovely. And finally, commendable, that which is thought of well and considerate. It's kind of this action of a gentleman. That's the kind of high standard it's talking about. An action of a gentleman who is kind and courteous and respectful and putting other people first. See, these are the things that we are to dwell on. And the summary statement is uh, anything that's excellent, anything that's worthy of praise, is basically saying all these things is ex- are excellent and worthy of praise. You now know the standard of God. And he says, we are to think about these things. And then in verse 8, he, uh, it, or take note of this, that in verse 8, he's saying this is what we need to think about. But then in verse 9, he says this is what we should do. He says... He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. This is Paul speaking. I don't think he's being arrogant because he's putting this into practice. He says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul is making it clear that he walks in peace and the reader can do the same thing. He's trying to be an example of a peacekeeper. So this takes us to our last fifth principle. In order to have peace... We need to refocus our mind, our, our mind on what it's dwelling on. We need to refocus our mind on what it's dwelling on. So here's some questions. Are you an anxious person? Refocus your mind on everything we've talked about. Refocus your mind. Number two, are you constantly dealing with impure sexual thoughts? Not only refocus your mind, but saturate your mind. Get rid of the things that are bringing temptation to you. Number three, do you find your heart going towards anger all the time? Refocus your mind and heart. Do you find that you tell half-truths just to make yourself look better? Refocus your mind. Allow it to affect your actions. Do you find yourself gravitating to crass talk, to coarse jesting? Refocus your mind. Do you find yourself in general not being a gentleman or holding to a higher standard? Then refocus your mind. Are we peacekeepers, church? Are we creating a culture of peace? All we got to do is look at our world. And see how crazy this world is. And it's constantly in conflict. Just this week, we had the, the protest and killing in, in Charlottesville. We had the ISIS attack in Barcelona. My friends, we need peace. But peace only comes through Christ. If you don't have Christ, you don't have peace. Think about your relationship with Christ. Think about this peace in our closing song that Christ is enough. Lord Jesus, I pray, Father, that as, uh, as we just uh, reflect on your word, as we reflect on what it has said to us, that you would allow us to be a people that want to enact peace into our life. But Lord, help us to do it through Christ. Help us to see how important it is for Christ to be central in our life. 
And Lord, I pray for that person right now that has a lack of peace because they simply don't know you. I pray that they would call out to you and say, Lord, reveal yourself to me. I pray for that person, that believer that's in a very difficult situation. And it doesn't seem like there's a resolve in the end. And I just pray that you would be with that person, wrap your arms around them, give them that warm hug of peace. But Lord, I pray that they would rejoice in you, that they would be a gentle spirit, and that, that, that you would just allow them to pray their heart out to you, call out to you. Lord, you work in our hearts wherever we are. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.